You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. There are ministries that pioneer, that show and model for us a way forward in living our Christian lives, and in doing so, help us more fully to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and means, and provides examples, demonstration plots, as Clarence Jordan would say, of what the kingdom of God is like and what sorts of things we can do to advance it. Three of those pioneering ministries are linked. Cornania Farms, founded by Clarence and Florence Jordan and Martin and Mabel Engel, Habitat for Humanity, founded by Linda and Millard Fuller, and Jubilee Partners, founded by Mary Ruth and Ed Wire, Karen and Ryan Karras, and Carolyn and Don Mosley. Don Mosley's ministry has been integrally involved with all three, but especially with Jubilee Partners and Habitat for Humanity. Don is here to tell us about the story of these two ministries and what is happening now with Jubilee Partners. So welcome, Don. Thank you for being with me. I'm happy to be here. Why don't we um, begin, because I know that... um, I guess from what you've told me and what I, I've, I've read, um, Cornelia Farms served as kind of the uh, fertile ground out of which both uh, Habitat and uh, Jubilee Partners grew. Um, what was your spiritual journey that kind of led you to Cornelia Farms? Well, I will try to reduce decades down to some minutes here (laughs) because, well, let me just say that I grew up in a very privileged, very um, segregated um, situation, a home in Waco, Texas. And my father was a self-made millionaire, a real genius at building heavy hydraulic equipment and so on. And I was the oldest kid in my generation with a big family all around me admiring this cute little boy and treating me like I was King Don. And so I grew up in that situation and of course was totally unaware of the racism and many other things around me. But I was loved very much and and treated. I have wonderful parents, both very loving parents. So I grew up in that situation. The one really, I look back on it now as very negative thing, was that we we went to a church many times a week to this church that was all about fire and brimstone. And I will not name the denomination even, uh, but it was a a church that, that seldom if ever talked about God's love for us or for anyone else. More frequently, far more frequently, talked about racist matters and they use the worst language 
the N-word, and oh, just on and on, and also talked about the importance of getting out there and killing those communists, and on and on. It was just, it was violent. So by the time I was a teenager, I was beginning to really question, uh, how can I take this? How can I continue my whole life in this kind of setting? And I broke loose when I was 21 then. I loved my parents so much that I waited until I was 21. I had saved a huge amount of money, $1,500 to go around the world. I wanted to take off and spend at least a year or two escaping that situation. So I went to, I'm going to skip over a lot of the adventures. I rode a bicycle across Europe. I had many adventures in the Middle East. John F. Kennedy was elected while I was in Beirut, Lebanon. And that shocked me because a Catholic in the White House, oh no. But um, I went ahead then to Egypt on my way down, I thought, through Central Africa. And when I got to Egypt, traveling on a dollar a day, that amount of money that I had, and I was really traveling, sleeping in fields and, and eating very, very cheap food, and in the process, discovering, hey, there are a lot of poor people in this world. And there are a lot of people who are surviving on a tiny fraction of what I've always had. And so, I, um, I began to get my eyes open some by that. But then when I got into Egypt, I was traveling down or up the Nile River, uh, headed south. And because I was traveling on so little money, I managed to persuade the Egyptian train authorities, the, the conductor, to let me ride, believe this or not, in the cattle car going up the Nile River in a big open uh, pen full of cows. It was nasty, um, and it stunk. But it was cheap. They let me do that, I think, pretty much free of charge. And when they would stop at cities along the way, I could hear the conductor shouting, Okay, now we're stopping at such and such. And I heard them say, We are about to stop at Asut, Egypt. And I thought, Asut? Oh, my goodness. I remember hearing about Asut. That's where that orphanage is, Leon Trasher's Orphanage, to which I sent $5 a month for three or four months one time to support orphans there. So I climbed over the fence and got out of the cattle car and left the train and started asking around, where is Leon Trasher's Orphanage? And people pointed me across the Nile River and I went over there, and sure enough, big compound. I knocked on the door, and the the front gate, and some staff people let me in. And almost immediately, I could tell that I must stink because there were uh, there was a expression on their face as I said, "I'm here to see Leon Treasure," and they went, "Oh." Um, well, okay, so they called Leon Treasure. Mama Leon 
she was known. Now this, I have to step back and explain. Leon Trasher had come to Egypt 50 years earlier, exactly 50 years before I got there. And she was now a very, very old woman, I thought. 75 years old, 76 maybe. I'm 83 now. That doesn't seem quite so old as it did then. Um, and sure enough, Leon Treasure, and I should say too, that she got there as a missionary. Uh, that was her intent, but she spoke no Arabic. And some missionaries took in this 21-year-old innocent girl from Georgia, as it happens. She was from Brunswick, Georgia. And they took her into the compound. She'd only been there a few days when she began to notice outside the missionary compound there in Asut that there were homeless children, hungry, hungry little children around on the sidewalk. And so she started taking those children into her room. And when the other missionaries discovered that, they said, wait a minute, get those kids out of here. We can't do that. We can't We can't start filling up our whole missionary uh, compound with all these homeless kids. And she said, well, then I'm out of here. And she left the compound, speaking still at this point, very little Arabic or anything. But she went out onto the street. She had $40 at that point. And she found a room that she could rent and and put children into it, and then she went out and started begging for food from rich Egyptians. This story is relevant to the question you asked me. Um, she went out and started, and, and the rich Egyptians were embarrassed to have this young American woman out there asking for food for their orphans that they were not feeding. So they gave generously, and she founded the big orphanage then, or the orphanage that grew and grew and grew. When I got there in 1960, she had 1,500 children in that orphanage, plus quite a few blind people and some handicapped and uh, some widows and a few other helpless people. And she was Mama Leon to all those people. Boy, I had never seen anything like this in my life back in that fire and brimstone church in, in Texas. And I spent two days with her. She did ask me to take a shower first thing I did when I, I got there. Um, I needed that. But she let me follow her around and watch her put her love into action. It was not about fire and brimstone. It was about loving this child and that child. And kids were grouped around her all the time, just in a big crowd. Mama Leon, she was the most loved person <laughs> anywhere around there. So that changed my life. After two days with Mama Leon, I came out of there and ended up coming back home. Meanwhile, this new president, Kennedy, had announced the formation of his uh, of the Peace Corps. And I thought, okay, I don't want to go back and 
immerse myself in all the the problems back in in my home. I I want to continue to love my parents and relate to them. But this Peace Corps sounds like something I could do that's a little bit like like what Mama Liam was doing. So I became one of the very first people to join John F. K.'s JFK's new Peace Corps. And I ended up going to Malaysia for two years as a Peace Corps volunteer. Had a wonderful experience, uh, eye-opening. I was, I was in a village of completely Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, Asians, all of them from different parts of Southeast Asia. And I came home from that and was just kind of trying to find a way to settle back down at home. And I had a a guy who was a a roommate who said, Don, you know, you've been in Asia for two years. You'd enjoy this Hawaiian girl that I'm, uh, she's, she's a graduate student counseling at the school where I teach. So I said, well, set us up with a, a date. And he did. And when I met her, I was astounded. Oh, she's not an Asian Hawaiian girl, like I thought. A Maori, probably. Uh, she was she was a Caucasian. But, wow, I loved her. I mean, I liked her from the very moment I met her. And so she ended up being the daughter of Dr. H.B. Ramser, a very prominent Baptist in his mission work. And uh, and I ended up marrying Dr. Ramser's daughter. And Carolyn and I, and she agreed to go with me to back into the Peace Corps, back to Asia. And we went to um, South Korea and spent two years where I was Peace Corps director over about 100 to 120 Peace Corps volunteers in the northern third of South Korea. It was a very dramatic two years, and I'll skip over details, but there were gun battles, there were all types of dramatic things that happened, 1967 to 69, while we were there. While we were there, here comes Cornelia finally, while we were there, a friend sent me a big box of big old reel-to-reel tape recordings of Clarence Jordan's um, um, weekend that he had given, uh, he had led a retreat for young people in which Clarence, the founder of Cornelia Farm in South Georgia, uh, Clarence taught about the Bible in a way that I had not heard anybody teach back in in the U.S. And Carolyn agreed that when we got back home, we'd go there and, and be volunteers. And we did that. That was 1970 when we got back and went to Cornelia. We were, I especially first was hooked. Carolyn came around later. She was uh, willing, but not as enthusiastic right at first as I. And then we ended up being there for eight years. 
Now, I'll skip over real quickly um, the fact that I had been a mechanical engineer for briefly working with my father, and I got a degree in Baylor University and, and math and history, and then went to the University of Texas and got a master's degree. And I had a degree in, in mechanical engineering. So when we got to um, to Cornelia, this young man, Miller, Clarence Jordan, had died just months before we got there. So we missed him. We never got to meet him. But Millard Fuller and his wife, Linda, um, had come a year or so before we got there. And he had become the director of Cornelia. And he said, he came to me in a short time and said, Don, we've got this housing program here. We've built six houses already for the poor black families around here. Would you like to be, I want you to be in charge of the housing program. And I said, oh, Miller, my goodness, I've never built a house in my life. He said, that doesn't matter. You, you'll learn fast. Turned out I did. We had enough visitors, contractors, and professionals of all types, and I had enough volunteers, hardworking, mostly young guys from Mennonite farms and all around, and we, we were turning out one house a month for a couple of years there. And then I helped Millard uh, start a project in... Bandaka Zaire, I spent January 1974 in Zaire with Miller and Linda, and that became, when they came back, we founded Habitat for Humanity, and that project in Bandaka actually became the first official habitat project around the world, so that since then, there have been more than a million houses built around the world in over a hundred countries. And Millard was the primary founder of all of that. I was his first foreman and technical expert. You know, I learned on the run, but um, I've, I've helped build many houses in many countries around the world. Okay, to jump on up to Jubilee Partners, um, in the mid-70s, Cornelia seemed to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Our meetings, uh, business meetings and lunches and everything were getting so big, so crowded, that it was becoming a problem. We had over three dozen full-time uh, resident partners there. And we decided we needed to begin to bud off into some new communities, branch out and, and spread to some new locations. So I ended up being one of the primary um, brainstormers and founders of what became Jubilee Partners. And so we moved up here and I continued to work. I was on the executive committee of Habitat for Humanity for many years and traveled all over the world with Habitat. At the same time, I was working with um, Jubilee's work here. So, um, would you like to hear how we got into refugee work? 
Well, yes, absolutely. How I was, that was the next question was, you know, how, how, how did that particular focus come about? Okay. While we were still at Cornelia, I was beginning to be very concerned about climate change, for one thing, and racism had been very high on the list, and I haven't even mentioned our friend eight miles up the road, Jimmy Carter, who in the meantime served 76 to 80, 1976 to 1980, he was the president, and I worked with him against racism in Sumter County. That's what gave him his start in politics. But I thought that this new community should be a place to build solar equipment, as we had already begun to do a little bit there at Cornelia, to go onto the roofs of some of these new habitat houses as a way of spreading um, the ideas. So when we found this property in Comer, Georgia, where Jubilee Partners is located, in northeast Georgia, about 200 miles uh, from Cornelia, we came out and we camped in the field, a big open uh, field with a lot of cattle still grazing in it, with a billion mosquitoes and flies, and the heat was horrible. And there were no buildings, no roads, no water system. It was just an open field with beautiful uh, trees out around 260 acres of land with with a small river and all kinds of, of beauty around us, but no, um, not the sort of place that North Americans, at least, would normally go to. Hey, suddenly I remembered those refugees in the Middle East and other places that I had met, and I began to pay more and more attention to what our friend still in the White House, this was when we moved here to uh, Jubilee. It was 1979, and the Carters were in Washington for another year and a half after we moved here, and they were talking about refugees, and about and and Rosalind Carter actually went down to um, to Cambodia or to Thailand to a, a refugee camp there, and she was, there was a picture that was shown in newspapers all over the world of this first lady standing there holding a Cambodian baby in her arms. And um, some of that, plus the flies and mosquitoes and the blistering heat, and, and then in the fall, very low record temperatures, 22 degrees, October the 22nd, I still remember. An all-time record for the coldest day of that date. We were living in tents with our children. And we changed our minds and said, instead of building solar equipment, we should make this place into, at least for a while, welcome refugees here. Some of those people that from the... Vietnam War, the, the Vietnamese boat people, the mothers with children, orphans that were um, fleeing from the war and all of that. We've got to have a place to help at least a few of those families. 
and we agreed unanimously very, very quickly. And we started, we built the Welcome Center, the the Jubilee uh, Refugee Center. And we got it done 12 hours before the first families, the first refugees arrived here a year later. And um, it just, oh, one thing led to another. We have since then hosted over 4,000 refugees here at Jubilee since 1980 when the first ones came from about 40 different countries all over the world. And that, in turn, has led me in particular uh, to make many, many trips all over the world to war zones, um, investigating why different things are happening, trying to find ways to help ease the the tensions and all of that. And so that's what I've written some books about, um, many of those incredible things that God has led us through in war zones from North Korea to Nicaragua to Iraq and all over and Africa and many other places. So it's been a lively life and it continues to be. So Well your your wonderful book, Faith Beyond Borders, um describes how you have have done the wonderful um uh job of integrating your work with Habitat with your interest in the in the refugees. Uh, kind of talk about how that integration, and, and I guess uh, connected with that, uh, your concern for peace building, peacemaking, peace building. Peace, peace building. Okay. Yes. Well, um, I'll give an example. When the terrorists hit the World Trade Center, 9-11, um, this is just one of many examples I could give, but when that happened, Carolyn and I, and bless her heart, she's a beautiful, very smart woman, but she had to be crazy to marry me in the first place. And she's crazy enough and full of enough love and faith that over and over she had said, okay, let's do it, when I came up with proposals like this, but... Our response to 9-11 was immediately to buy tickets to the Middle East. And we went to the Middle East at that point. And uh, I was on the board of directors of Habitat for Humanity. I had gone off for a while and was back on. And I was very interested in starting Habitat in Lebanon and Jordan, because I thought those were two places where there were a lot of tensions between Christians and Muslims, and Habitat gives people an opportunity to get together across racial lines, across religious barriers and everything else, and work together on a project that it, 99 times out of 100 it draws the people closer together. Both the people who are building the houses with the poor people who are moving into them and 
those people who are building the houses closer to each other. So we took off for the Middle East a month after 9-11. We were, we were in the Middle East, I think, just about one month after 9-11. And we went all over the countryside talking to leaders, Christian leaders of different types and Muslim leaders and others. Habitat was already well enough, well enough known by then as a, an organization in other countries that they were interested in what we had to suggest about starting Habitat in their countries. And it was a successful trip. Um, when we flew back home, we were over the, the middle of the Atlantic Ocean uh, at about the time that the Board of Directors of Habitat was meeting back in the United States and this is the international board that was meeting. So there were representatives there from all around the world. And they voted yes to my proposal that we start Habitat in Lebanon and Jordan. So that led to my making numerous trips back to those two countries, especially to work on Habitat projects. And I had the great privilege of being able to get up on a scaffold and Southern Lebanon, for instance, where Jews and Christians and Muslims had been bombing each other or, or blasting houses, tearing them down, and we were building them back up. And I actually, I remember one day in particular, I was up on that scaffold with a Muslim on one side and a, a Lebanese Christian on the other side, and they were both smiling as they pounded nails, and I was pounding in between, and and we were talking uh, just enough English that, that I could understand what they were saying, and they could understand me. And they were saying, this is much better than tearing houses down. I'm so glad we can do this. And it led to the construction of thousands of houses in Lebanon and Jordan, more importantly, it led to who knows how many thousands of meetings between Muslims and Christians and Jews and others who then, once they met, nine times out of ten, it leads to more trust and friendship rather than the other direction. We usually bomb people that we have never met, children and all the rest. We Oh, well, can't help killing all those kids. Drop some bombs on them. And we are just too quick to justify military action around the world. In the United States, we've become a, a dangerous, big, big, big empire, far too often swinging in the direction of violence rather than uh, constructive, creative ways of going out and helping to rebuild friendships. Habitat for Humanity is one wonderful way to do that. Well, through, it, throughout your book, um, you mention some principles or insights that uh, have kind of shaped and guided what you've done. Uh, so I'd like, I'd like you to talk about some of those. Let me, let me kind of go down some of the list. Mm. 
Uh, let's, let's start with um, uh, the passage from Isaiah 43, where it talks about, I'm about to do a new thing. Uh, now it springs forth, and do you perceive it? Uh, and and you, you, you talk about the importance of being open to the new thing that God is doing. Yes, and I, I am afraid, and, and one, I mean, I'm afraid it's true that um, so many of us, and not only the fire and brimstone churches like I was, I grew up in, but lots of others too, individuals as well as churches, tend to think of. God as a theological, important theological um, reality. Uh, but now I've got to get out and, you know, go to work and do something else. Well, it's when we go out and put our faith in God and the love that Jesus taught so vigorously and he constantly demonstrated it in his own life Love not just for people like himself, but love for Samaritans, love for prostitutes, love for Pharisees and Sadducees or whomever. He went out and he was constantly in a channel of love to people. And he told us over and over and over. That's the, to me, it's the most central theme in all of Jesus' ministry. Get out and put your love into action. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when you put that into action, it's amazing how your eyes are open and you say, oh, I see God at work all around us out here. I, oh, thank you, God. And, and it's just, it's the most powerful theology. It's theology of practice rather than of theory and ideas and so i have found that to be true over and over again in my life i i mentioned i think in my book um a friend of mine who stated it best tom boone um tom was the great 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 grandson of daniel boone and Tom was very, he was, he was a wonderful guy, and he was very much involved with our founding of Habitat, and we were good friends at, at, back in the 70s. And one day I mentioned to him this racism in the local schools, and somebody had said, well, we need to try to write a good paper or something like that, you know, to help educate the the racist, uh, but, and Tom, I'll never forget, he looked me in the eye and, and he said, Don, one thing we should never forget, that we act our way into new ways of thinking far more often than we think our way into new ways of acting. And for me that, oh, I, it's just, it's so profound. And I have seen it proven in my life at least a hundred times, a thousand times, over and over. If I really want to learn about God's presence and God's uh, desire 
for us in different situations. Get out there and feed a hungry kid or get out there and help some refugees uh, learn a little English and learn how to shop in our complicated supermarkets and and on and on, this kind of, and Habitat for Humanity and all the rest. That's where it comes down to learning a new way to think. Well, you talked about um, the, um, it's, it's one thing to be convinced to be involved in the kind of peace work that you do with Jubilee and with Habitat, but it's another to know how. Uh, kind of tell us a little more about, about the how part. How to do it? Yeah. Well, I think the first uh, advice I would give is don't wait until you think you found a way to change the whole world. Look for ways close at hand, a hungry kid that's next door to you. A, an elderly woman who, who's having trouble getting up and down her steps in some uh, house, you know, who needs food brought to her. Um, people who are, are depressed and, and don't see any hope in their lives for some reason. Give them a, a meal and talk with them and encourage them. Deal with individual people over and over again. And with projects then like um, groups of people putting a Habitat house up or, or we have a lot of neighbors right here in northeast Georgia who come here to Jubilee and help us teach English. And they come on a regular basis, once a week, twice a week, and help teach English. Right now we have... Not too many refugees here at the moment, as many as we've had in the past, but from a wide variety of countries, about five different countries at this moment. And these people are coming from a mile up the street, up the road here in Comer, Georgia. They're coming here to Jubilee and teaching women and children from Cameroon in Africa, from from Mexico and, and Honduras and Venezuela and on and on. We've had so many countries come through Jubilee and people meeting them and working with them each day, it enriches their lives. And I think that's how they find bigger and bigger steps than they can take uh, toward being faithful to God's kingdom. And that, to me, that's what it's all about. Okay. Um, you spoke about um, the the tension, I guess would be the right word, um, relating to government. Uh, that to do some of your work, you need to work in cooperation with government. But also there are times in which you need to challenge government. Uh, critique it, and then sometimes even break its laws uh, in the work that you do. Kind of help navigate that for us a little bit. Well, 
First of all, I believe in democracy. I believe in government. I think it's necessary and good for people to respect the fact that our neighbors' children need to have a school somewhere to learn mathematics and so on and so on. Well, we need to work together to build those schools. We need to work together to uh, set up certain zones in our towns for whatever. We need to work together on a national scale and an international scale. Humans need to work together. So I'm I'm not anti-government. I'm not a you know just a a, a person who throws out all government. I think. People who do that are not being realistic. At the same time, I think that I am um, required at times by my faith in God and my attempts to be faithful, I am required to take, to say no to some things, such as in the past, my father, I, I just have to mention one more thing about my rich father. When I refused in the end to take over his business, he was very disappointed, but he, he sold it then, and he left me a huge amount of money, somewhere close to a million dollars. And right away, I became a big taxpayer. <laughs> I mean, much more than I had been up to that point, because that money was drawing interest, and I was having to pay a lot of taxes, happened to coincide with the times that I was going out to war zones one after another and seeing what our military actions often, not just from our own weapons or our own uh, U.S. military forces, but road mines and bombs and things that we were supplying sometimes to violent forces out in these different battlefields. Oh, I was seeing up close bleeding people, children being killed, all kinds of horrible things. And I just thought, as a Christian, I cannot do this. Jesus would not say, well, sure, I'll help buy some more of those bombs to do this. So I became a tax resistor. And I became a very outspoken tax resistor. Um, and my wife, again, bless her heart, she went along with me on this. And, um, and we refused to pay the federal, uh, a portion equivalent to the amount that was going into military spending. And then as time went on, then we just said, we will not pay any more federal taxes at all. Well, I would skip over a whole bunch of things that happened, but I ended up in prison because of that. And I was, I was in prison for, I was sentenced to 60 days. I had a wonderful judge who happened to be a distant friend of the Carters, in fact, in, in um, South Georgia, my judge refused to put me in jail indefinitely as the IRS lawyer from Washington, D.C. was demanding. 
And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, he even made the statement before the court, your testimony that you have made here before me is so different from what I'm used to hearing in this courtroom. Instead of a criminal, you sound like Joan of Arc, he said. I thought, oh my goodness, Joan of Arc? Uh, uh, I had to go back and do a little research exactly what was she saying, but um, he sentenced me to 60 days in jail. And later on, when Millard Fuller, who was head of Habitat for Humanity at that point, uh, got a note to me in jail just saying, I hope everything's going okay for you and so on. I wrote back uh, to Millard and said, would you ask our friend Jimmy Carter, who had become more and more involved with Habitat at that point, would you ask him to um, please send a note to Judge Fitzpatrick thanking him that he was so kind-hearted and that he understood that I was acting, I was breaking the law, yes, and he had no choice but to sentence me like this, but that I was doing it for matters of principle. Well, Jimmy Carter, in fact, sent him a note praising him for that, and guess what? The guards came to my door and said, and opened the door and said, Mr. Mosley, pack your stuff up and come out. You're released immediately. And I said, what? I've only been in for 40 days. I've still got 20 more days. And they said, nope, word has just come from the judge. You are now free. So, made a difference there. I could tell several others where when I took many truckloads, I raised funds and took many truckloads of medicine to the children in Iraq during our shock and awe campaign in, in the Middle East against uh, Saddam Hussein, who was a very violent guy, no question. But our response was bombing lots of women and children and others um, in those shock and awe campaigns. And I was helping to get medicine. The U.S. was blocking all medicine and a lot of other uh, things into Iraq. And I got, uh, through our campaign, dozens of truckloads of, of antibiotics and other things to the children. And I even went there three times altogether, um, helping to deliver those to the children's hospitals. And the U.S. government, and I'm giving this, it's another example, where they first were calling me and saying, we're going to, you're breaking the law, you're taking medicine to Iraq, you're going to be fined up to a million dollars, one man told me at one point. And I said, nope, I'm not paying anything. I gave away the last of my uh, money that my father had left me, had no money in the bank at all. And uh, I said, you can put me in prison, of course, again, but I'm not going to pay you any uh well, anyway, and, and they finally, a, a soft-spoken man called me from Washington, D.C. I'll never forget. I wish I had a tape recording because in a very soft voice, he said, Mr. Mos Mr. Mosley, uh, due to the humanitarian nature of your offense, uh, we have decided to reduce your fine to just $7,500. And I said, nope, I'm not going to pay. Oh, 
2500 I think it was. I said, I'm not going to pay a cent. And they dropped the charges completely. And I ended up going back with a third session uh, to Iraq, went with the with Dr. Bob Edwards, who Edgar, who was the head of the National Council of Churches at that point. And we took other people with us there, and I made the announcement uh, to a press conference in Baghdad that we were jointly launching a huge program worldwide to bring medicine to the children in Iraq, the All Our Children campaign. And that led, within a few months, we had medicine there for more than 200,000 children. All of that has shown for me that it is not hopeless. Even when you stand up to the government um, and you you keep making the right point and, and making it clear that this is being done out of love, not out of hatred of my country or something like that. But people are all up and down the legal network in, in Washington, D.C. and wherever. They, they get at least glimpses of the truth, I think, in that, and it, it affects their policies. So I'm in favor of following the laws, except when they break the lo- the higher laws that God um, tells us about loving our enemies and loving others. Let's look for creative ways to make neighbors and brothers and sisters of our enemies instead of killing them and their children. Well, as a final question, um, Jubilee Partners is in its fifth decade. Uh, what do you see to be the present obstacles, but then also uh, the opportunities? Well, I would say one obstacle that we're certainly having to work with right now, and and let me first say before that, that it is true that we get older as years pass. Huh, I was hoping never to get old. Um, but we need to recognize that and shift gears and take different roles and open the doors for younger people with the, with the right motivations to come in and, and take over leadership. And we have some wonderful young younger people here at Jubilee who are giving that leadership right now. Otherwise, I, I guess we'd be closed down already. But I will not get into a lot of politics, but under our recent um, administration, refugees were barred from coming into this country uh, to a very large extent. And the agencies that we were working with decade after decade, Church World Service, the International Rescue Committee, and other such refugee support organizations, they've had to just lay off a big part of their staff and close down many of their regional offices and so on. 
So we've had to be more, um, our, our younger staff, uh, I'm proud of them as I can be because they have been very creative um, in reaching out to churches and to networks of all types and in a much more, um, oh, at times it seems chaotic <laughs> way, um, and but it, not such a big stream of people coming through. Fewer people are coming, but more diverse, um, mostly mothers and children. It has been the women and children around this world who, as always, suffer the most from wars, from climate change, and from all the rest. So we have some men here now and uh, refugees and coming through, but it's about three or four women for every one man and their children. And, oh, those children are always so beautiful. Got little kids here right now from, well, all colors. I just love them. Uh, when you look at those children... Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm privileged to work with of such here at Jubilee. Well, the world is a better place. And the work of Christ has been advanced because of the way you have allowed Christ to work in, with, and through you. Uh, so thank you for what you've done and the role model you provide. Uh, I'm deeply grateful uh, for what you uh, inspire. And hopefully, as, as, as you said, the Clarence Jordan talked about that the Sermon on the Mount wasn't to inspire, but to evoke perspiration. That's right. You sweat a lot in this work. And, and I must say, too, it's not just heavy, depressing work. No, no, this is the most joyful work I can imagine. Uh, I make $20 a week, doggone it, plus room and board and I built the rooms and we get a lot of our board from our own garden uh, and so on but we live on a fraction of what most well way below the poverty level and yet we are rich because of the work that God gives us to do well I mean, may God continue to bless it and thank you for for what you've done and thank you for being with me today. Well, thank you for what you are doing. You are opening the the doors for many different people to give their testimonies. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel dot b-l-u-b-r-r-y dot net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. Hey, the words
from my mouth, speak your 